Listening to Food Chain, presented by Perfy. A big thank you to this episode's sponsor, Triple Whale. Triple Whale's powerful analytics platform clarifies your ad performance across channels, keeping you instantly in the know. Hit the link in the show notes and use promo code Perfy for 15% off today. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Food Chain. Today we have DG from Dream Pops with us. Welcome to the show. Excited to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Of course. Likewise, man. I'm excited to get into this conversation. But before we do, can you tell us a little bit more about you and how you got to where you are today? Yes, absolutely. You know, in another life, I worked in finance. Uh, I also was lucky enough to work for a guy named Jesse Itzler in 2010, was watching the 100 Mile Group team build better for you CPG brands, leveraging Facebook and Twitter and technology and social media at the time. Fell in love with the idea of building a career around building better for you food products and beverage products, knew that eventually I would want to do that and was lucky enough, you know, trusting my gut of always loving sweets, treats, and desserts. I loved Dippin' Dots, Dunkaroos, Gushers, all the 90s snacks growing up. I met the inventor of the Dream Pop product, the actual Popsicle, uh, was blown away by the design and had a gut feeling that we could build a platform that really reimagines cult classic desserts, sweets, treats, and and and, and all sorts of uh, of CPG products. And you know, it started in 2017. I quit my job, but a year prior, had been trying to figure out how am I going to quit my finance job and go do this. Um, we started making popsicles in my mom's kitchen, and have since been in six different commercial kitchens. And now we have a number of factories around the country. Dream Pops is in about almost 7,000 stores, both in the US and Canada. Uh, yeah, you know, we, we started in ice cream, we just launched candy, and we're looking to really go after every single dessert experience. Hell yeah. You know, one thing that's really funny is three, I think actually the past four guests, maybe not Paul, have come from a finance background. And one thing that fascinates me about founder stories is where do we come from? You know, like it's almost like a video game. I have a marketing background and community and all of that stuff. And finance, we all kind of have go in with our own traits on building brands and, and why we left. Usually it's because we were burnt out or we just weren't fulfilled or whatever the case may be. So it's pretty fascinating that uh, four times in a row, it was finance to CPG. So how's it been so far, like in terms of having that background? Yeah, I think I'm lucky. I mean, I would say there's probably a big advantage when you every day you're sitting in a cubicle, you know, you're building a financial model, you're sitting with C-suite executives, helping them with private placements, M&A, you're looking at industries, you know, new businesses every few months, and you have to be as sharp as humanly possible. That means just learning and reading and consuming as much content, uh, as many financial statements as you can. And so I think that bootcamp gives you a huge toolkit that you can apply to building a CPG brand. Doesn't guarantee success. This business is a lot of luck, timing. You know, we launched with a plant-based product before this big boom in the early stages when I was first pitching investors and building this brand in 2016, 17, plant-based was uh, people would look at me funny that we had a vegan or a plant-based product. And so we definitely got lucky with timing. And a lot of other things had to go right, had a great team in place that's been able to take us here, takes a true village to build a a CPG brand. Interesting. So when you were building in 2016, 2017, and plant-based wasn't quite in vogue yet, that's trailblazing. But 
what has it been like since with other brands across different categories? Has that made the job a lot easier, made investors get it much quicker? What's that process been like? Yeah, I think with the exception of this year, because the climate's gotten pretty nasty, uh, it's yeah. probably the worst capital raising environment I've ever seen as an entrepreneur. Um, and I empathize for a lot of other founders. It's really tough. You have to focus on sound fundamentals, profitability, survival, cash con- cash conservation at all costs. That's And the truth of the matter is the next 12 to 18 months, like the businesses that had great marketing or you know were cool or interesting or uh, appealing from a surface level are not going to be sustainable. You really need differentiation. You need a community and you need sustainable economics. So sorry, remind me what the question was. In the plant-based world, you know, now since 2016, 2017, when you first started getting going and investors weren't quite, um, their ears weren't perking to a plant-based frozen dessert. How have things been better for you with other plant-based products across different categories? Have you seen it easier to pitch Dream Pops or, you know, what has that been like? I think in 2019 through 21, there was a huge opening of opportunity for plant-based alternatives in candy and ice cream and meat, all meat. And there was a real appeal and retailers are ready to lean in. And there's been a ton of growth in that category, plant-based across all categories, yogurt, alt meat, ice cream, et cetera. Um, I will say that the it, there have been a lot of brands and businesses that have kind of butchered the term and I'm seeing you know large retail, big box retail step away from wanting to lean into plant-based. Um, I think dairy-free, better for you, real clean ingredients is really that next wave that people are dialing into. And that's always been at the ethos of our brand. But you know, I do think that there are some plant meat companies and plant-based ice cream brands that you know, maybe they were plant-based, but they didn't focus on some of the other ingredients. And that's left, uh, you know, a blemish on the name. And the same thing I think happened to keto a little bit as well last few years. I hear you there. You know, I'll be honest and I'll say this. Um, you don't have to. It's on me. I think that some of the alt meats have created a barrier to entry for anything plant-based because of how things were produced and kind of some of this bad publicity that's coming out right now. Um, have you seen any sort of barriers that you've had to climb over with, with yours as a result of other people's behaviors in using plant-based as a uh, descriptor? Yeah. And I don't think we're looking at anything new. Fat-free had a moment, you know, yeah. low sugar, low calorie. There are always these waves of descriptors, you know, Halo Top with, you know, less than 100 calories or a couple hundred calories per pint. There are always these moments that people flock to. But at the end of the day, what you really need to make is a product that tastes amazing, that is differentiated, has some sort of defensibility, and that has a real community behind it, people that want to keep buying it. So no matter how amazing a trend might be or a fad might appear, you can get quick sales, but arguably that's worse because the second you get discontinued and no one wants a, you know, a descriptor, then you are in a lot of trouble. I hear you there. One of um, in some of my studies in the past, there's mm-hmm. a, something called a done framework, and the E in the done framework means does your positioning endure? And I find that a lot of these fads that don't endure, you know, you mentioned an ice cream company, they were once the darlings that they no longer are. And I don't think that positioning endured. So pretty cool that you've noted that and you've really led with product, you know, differentiated product, clean ingredients and plant-based, whereas others maybe have some chemical stuff in there. 
Yeah, thank you. I would say in 23 too, you know, we're making some improvements to the brand and some tweaks and adjustments. So I think you're going to see us continue leaning heavily into real food, real ingredients, truly better for you. But once again, like brand, Dream Pops as a brand, a community, this whimsical Willy Wonka world is really going to be front and center. Speaking of Willy Wonka, I want to transition a bit over to your social. So I've been following Dream Pops for years. And I think that you've done a pretty stellar job, whether it was you or your team, likely a few years ago, it was probably just you repurposing content from all different parts of Instagram. You've created almost a dream world that you didn't always have to create yourself. Can you walk me through that process or the audience through that process of how you did it so well? Yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, You'd probably be surprised at how small our marketing team is. I, I still do quite a lot of it, but we've had great partners and folks on the team that have helped freelancers, uh, you know, Josh, who's amazing. But the truth of the matter is, you know, the way that we look at brand is kind of an art form. Every medium needs to embody that dream pops message, that ethos of anything is popsicle, dream big, dream bigger, you know, really pushing the limits and in innovation. You know, if it's a photo, if it's animation, if it's a sound, a song, a jingle, that needs to stand for something and it needs to live within that world. And so anyone that's building a brand, Nike's done it so well, Apple, Starbucks, the best brands have sounds, feelings, tastes, and thinking about that emotion that is created when you create that brand. How do you want people to feel? That takes like decades to Mm -hmm. create that emotion and what I was so passionate about with CPG and still am is I think about my like childhood nostalgic experiences with Dippin' Dots, with Gushers, with Dunkaroos, with Cookie Crisp. Like I have emotions tied to those food products. And in our mind, like we want to replicate, we want to stand for something. When someone sees Dream Pops, the same way I thought about dibs in the movie theater with those red cups, there's a memory palace and this feeling associated with being happy with family, eating this product, true joy. If you can tie that to a product, that's when you start to have things like Nike or Disney or Apple, where they have emotions that are extensions of their brand, their feelings or experiences that are extensions of the brand. Yeah, beautifully said. I, um, I'm i a big fan of that. I think a lot of brands fall into a little bit of a lazy trap. Now, now building social to me, I don't think it needs to be extremely expensive, especially if you're on a scrappy budget, you can do cool things and create a feeling. When you look through your Instagram feed, there's a clear and consistent feeling of like a dream world. And I don't think brands can wrap their head around that. And I don't think they're as diligent as they could be when developing their grid. You know, people are saying, oh, it's all about TikTok now. Well, yeah, and we'll get to that in a second. But I think it's really dope how you've created that feeling with your product. For me on my side with Perfy, we're all about happiness. And from that first sip, we want to create similarly a feeling of joy. I think that the effects of the ingredients should also help with that. So kudos to you for having dope social. And um, speaking of that, I want to dive into how has this emergence of TikTok and Be Real or other platforms changed with how you run things or has it at all? Yeah, you know, I see every social platform as a new channel on a television. So I see LinkedIn as a B2B thing, like white pages, like it's a B2B network. I look at TikTok as MTV or like a Gen Z station. I look at Instagram as a magazine, right? Like people are flipping through a magazine, they're referencing the brand, they see how you describe yourself via static images and, you know, you think about YouTube shorts, another great medium. 
Pinterest, et cetera. They're all opportunities to get your brand in front of the masses. And we built this brand on Instagram, you know, six years ago when we first started, and that had some awesome organic reach, and we were partnering with influencers. And then, you know, three and a half years ago, we noticed the opportunity on TikTok and LinkedIn and went all in. And so we diversified the reach. And so we weren't susceptible to when organic reach would go down. And then we started to think about it from a math perspective of like with data, like, wow, you know, in 2018, 19, if you posted on TikTok, we would put up a post a day and we were starting to get millions of views and gaining tens of thousands of followers a week or a month. And in my mind, it was like, wow, we put up a video that reached a stadium worth of people. And the same thing happened on LinkedIn, but a different stadium. And so we can go around, you know, every single day, we have the ability to reach a stadium's worth of people. This isn't going to be the norm. You have to pay for this. Same thing happened in Facebook, at Twitter, on Instagram. So we really were diligent in creating content repeatedly every day, one to three videos or posts a day across those platforms to scale and create a digital community. That is now happening on YouTube. And that's where we're putting our efforts. I will add that we tried that with Clubhouse and then quickly realized that it wasn't worth the time. But you know that was one that didn't work. YouTube, TikTok, and LinkedIn did work and were sticky. Be real, we're dabbling with, but it's not uh, our main focus. Yeah. And do you think that anytime a new platform emerges, a brand should be on it? Yeah, I think... I mean, people ask me why I'm wasting so much time on LinkedIn or TikTok. I'm literally posting on Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn. And so in the early days of doing it, I was getting a lot of pushback and flack for doing it. I think you need to get your hands dirty and understand what's really happening. And then if you do end up hiring agencies, which I'm not you know, a huge advocate for, if you do do that or freelancers, you need to be able to gauge how good they are at what they do. So I am definitely a, encourage any single founder, CEO, operator to get their hands dirty and post and see on look at the data and understand what's really happening on those platforms. I love it. I respect that take. I think I've seen founders that maybe don't have your capabilities that get shiny toy syndrome and do eight different channels, two out of 10, instead of one or two, nine out of 10. And I think that if the founder can dedicate that time, 100%. I think they totally should do it. But if they can't, they should really focus on what they're good at. I think LinkedIn here's, is a priority. Here's, here's what I'll say, Vasa, is like, I think there's people get stuck with this idea that it's so, in, it takes so much time and money. Like, I just have a calendar invite every single day, a slot at like two different parts of my day where mm-hmm. I need to get up a LinkedIn post, a YouTube short, a TikTok, an Instagram. The more you do it and you just have a bank of content that you can work off of, like it shouldn't take more than five to 10 minutes. If you're going, you know, a LinkedIn post, it's a little more thoughtful. Yes, fine, but it's a muscle. And so I really do believe in this diligent, it's free. <laughs> it's not going to be free forever. You know, Elon Musk is joking of subscriptions for blue checks. Like a lot of these tech companies are struggling. They're going to start charging for these platforms. They do, the organ- especially with the organic reach, right? So yeah. I hear you. LinkedIn and Twitter have been a blessing for me. I don't spend on ads right now. I'm still trying to, you know, do things 100% organically and build the brand that way this first year. But LinkedIn has surprisingly been fantastic for me from a, a B2B standpoint. It's also led to some attributed sales. I, I go into Shopify and I can see what's come in from LinkedIn and Twitter. And I'm like, oh, damn, I didn't even expect that. Um, I think all founders should 100% have some sort of perspective or point of view that they're sharing on LinkedIn daily as well. 
Yeah. And look, it's uncomfortable. Like you need to be ready to have people judge you. Like people will make comments all the time. Oh, you know, dude, you're always on LinkedIn. It's like, I don't care. <laughs> like I'm trying to, you know, build a business and find an edge. And I've seen so much growth and, and, and so many wins from those channels that like, if you're going to allow negative opinions to influence you, you probably shouldn't be creating a company in the first place. Yeah, let's say that one louder for the folks in the back, because one, I, that sucks that people are even judging, um, but you got to do what you got to do. And if you're building a brand, I love sharing that part of the story. Early on, I was sharing probably a bit too much, but now I think it's just a cool building process and a very necessary thing that needs to be done. If you don't have thick skin, I agree. You got to probably not the thing for you. It's only creating opportunities, whether yeah. that's retailers, investors, new potential customers, sales. All it does is tell your storytelling at scale. Yeah. So do you want to get more bats at the plate to tell your story or do you want to be quiet? Yep. Respect. Um, I personally didn't realize the impact of, of LinkedIn and, and Twitter. And, and to be honest, this podcast until I went to Expo East in September and so many people had come up and said, I haven't seen your post on LinkedIn or I listened to the podcast. And, and these are like buyers and people that are like, not necessarily my the shopper that's going to buy product off the shelf, but they're still a customer of mine, you know, or, or yours, where the more they know about you as a person, the more they know about your brand, the easier that friction is going to be when you're pitching to them to put your product on their shelf. That's why, you know, yes, it's such a tough climate to raise money, but I still think it's the best time ever if you want to launch a food and beverage company and you're all in because yeah. in the 1950s, 40s, 60s, you couldn't do this. Like mm -hmm. you had to just create a product and you know distribute it and hope through guerrilla marketing like that people would like it or you needed millions of dollars to do out of home or yeah. you know drop product from the sky like you know baby ruth and snickers and some of these other companies were doing so yeah we're very fortunate to live in this digital world where you can get those at bats early on i love that you mentioned you know it's it's the hardest time but i think that this hard time right now is really opportunistic for those who do go all in like you said i think the founders that are just you know we had a founder on that her and her um and her partner use their wedding budget on their product to fund it if you're all in like that like you're going to do everything you possibly can and, and you will have thick skin it doesn't matter who or what people say yeah and look i think that once again on luck within the category there are certain categories beverage for example like we know requires a lot of capital frozen requires a lot of capital shelf stable snacks some others like there are i don't want to say easier because they're more competitive like i would then say okay then there's a barrier to entry in beverage or frozen because only so many people can build out that infrastructure right yeah but i also will really like reiterate because it's important like this is not an endeavor you need to do like if your focus is just to make money this is not i really highly encourage you not to build a cpg brand you need to love this industry and love what you do and want to have impact. And typically success will follow that, but it's a grind and it takes 10, 20, 30 years to build successful brands. Oh yeah, dude. Let's transition over to something that really intrigues me about your product and is and I think is a huge moat for you, the form factor of your pops. I know you mentioned you met the person who created that, but what has that been like and how has that insulated you from other folks? Yeah. So I think about the most iconic food and beverage brands in history, the Heinz ketchup bottle and logo, Palm Wonderful's, you know, bottles, the Hershey's Kiss, Dippin' Dots. 
Uh, they all leverage form factor to create this defensibility, this moat, this memory, and just association. So using shape and design to stand apart from the masses, I think is something that I've always just been very fond of and believed in. And it's very rare that you can have a product that without the packaging, you can identify. And so that was really important to us in such a crowded market. With that pop, like when I first saw it, it reminded me of Dippin' Dots, which has its iconic form factor. And I thought this geometric shape, you know, a dodecahedron, it's hard to explain and put into words. The second I saw it and tried it, it was so disruptive and modern and futuristic that I thought you could build an entire brand around that feel, that shape, that modern aesthetic. And that has flown through into our frozen bites, into our candy crunch, and into even our drip, which will come out in, in the next year or so, which is a geometric bottle. And so whenever anyone sees that geometry, there's another association of like, oh, that's got to be a Dream Pops product because of the pattern, the shapes. It's just another way to identify a brand through the masses. So sick. That's such an interesting way to just differentiate yourself. Aside from being clean, plant-based, like you will recognize that. It reminds me of things like smart water was one of the first bottles that was smooth and clear you know i think uh, someone just talked to me about this yesterday that early on in smart water they had a huge pop when they gave jennifer aniston you know don't quote me on this x amount of equity the deal was for her to walk around with that bottle every time she was walking her dog or something like that immediately you can associate to smart water like oh that's a smart water bottle clear with blue yep and then kind bar was the first to do the see-through packaging for yep. granola bar yeah, Halo Top had the gold rims, which I thought were pretty disruptive. RX bar ingredients on the front of the package, right? There's typically that X factor that I tend to see pop up in that packaging design for these really big successes. What I think about too is barcode, the way that they have a barcode that you could scan on the front of their package. That's pretty sick. I love that. It's super cool. Really oh, disruptive. Yeah. What was your biggest, we'll start with the, the good part. What was your biggest aha moment with Dream Pops when you were first starting? Biggest aha moment. Or you can get, flip it. What was your biggest oh shit moment? Like something that you'll probably never do again. Yeah. So I think I can share both. With aha, it was just looking like I kept thinking back to all these nostalgic childhood memories associated with food. I had the product, tried it, and just knew in my soul and my gut that there was something that could be created here around this aesthetic. I could see it. I even like remember sitting in my you know apartment drawing out products and like stores and what we would be creating. And some of those, it's a little eerie. Like I just kind of birthed it into existence and, and had a serious feel of where it was going to go and what could be built around it. Oh shit moment is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first two and a half, three years being laughed out the door, turned down by hundreds of investors, being mocked by ex-colleagues or people that I had previously worked with in finance, being at the grocery store, and just, you know, people kind of looking at me funny, like I'm handing out popsicles, not understanding, like I had these pops in plastic bags, like didn't understand distribution, UNFI, KEHI, uh, pricing, how hard it is to scale and make as much product. Even when you get the win, you got to make enough product with unit economics that makes sense, get it in the door. I think the realization of how long this stuff takes and how hard it is and you know, if anything, it fueled me to say, you know what, this is this is a mountain that I'm ready to climb and, and, I'm, and I'm game for it. Amazing. Um, like you, I've got a tremendous amount of rejections. I haven't been mocked or ridiculed. 
actually, maybe I have just in a different <laughs> format from uh, pitch competition judges. But do you keep like a running list or you like set it and forget it, you know, in one year out the other? Do you have like a, a chip on your shoulder from all of these early rejections? It's not out of spite. It's just as a, but I do have like every rejection. I do have a database that I have on my desktop. Uh, and yes. if, if, if anything, it's not, it's just to remind myself like, okay, hundreds of people thought we were crazy. And we're still here. It's 2022. I saw this on LinkedIn yesterday. I think it was JT Barnett. He said, they think you're crazy until it works. And then it's innovation. And I was like, nailed it. Love that. That's I'm so spot on. Nailed it. Um, yeah, I'm with you, man. I don't care as much for the rejections from the investment side. I understand that it's tough. And you know, if somebody doesn't know me, I get it. But what gets me is when a broker or an, an accelerator says, we're going to pass. And I, I know that beverage is competitive. I just literally just had a call earlier today having the same conversation. Like I know what I got myself into. I just wouldn't have this same, there's two things. I wouldn't have this same passion if I created a cheese cracker. I always crack the cheese cracker joke. Like there's not too much, like maybe cheese, it has the cool little hole in the middle and the little ridged edges. It just wouldn't be the same. And then the other part of it is that the barrier to entry is so high for beverage that I feel like there's a little bit of protection there. Like, I don't think anybody's, not too many people are that crazy. Like, I'm going to create a beverage. Yeah, I mean, the capital required, right? To like yeah. compete with the big dogs and to stick around, 100% agree with you. And I commend you. I think beverage is harder than ice cream and frozen. I think it's the hardest hardest category you could go into. So yeah, one 100% aligned uh, with that. So we're going to start wrapping up here, but I got a, a few more questions. What's your thought process around, you know, you mentioned the next 12 to 18 months are going to be extremely tough, but what's your thought process around how things are going to shake down? Not like the, the macroeconomic environment, but how is CPG uh, going to be impacted over the next 12 to 18 months? What trends do you think we'll start seeing? Yeah. I mean, we're already seeing retailers leaning into private label and course core products versus new innovation, which makes it really hard for merging brands. So uh, seeing some of that, not all of that, we're seeing, you know, cash is really expensive slash impossible to come by. So making sure that you lean and mean, then that means cutting literally everything. So growth is going to look a lot different in 2023 because it's not growth at all costs. Sometimes 20%, 50%, 75% growth is amazing. You don't need three to five X growth, uh, especially if you're tracking towards margin improvement and you're keeping your core same store sales chugging along and trying to beat those. So inch wide, mile deep, going deeper in those accounts, building a community, building a sustainable brand. It's less about virality. It's really about sustainability. I'm with you on that. Since I started, I thought that like, I, I hate admitting this, but I'll, I'll share it. I thought that I can get 10,000 customers online first and build an army before I really tried going to retail. That thought process on February 22nd, when Perfy launched, lasted 24 hours. Everything that I've done has been build a brand and a voice and build the back end. So in 2023, we can scale with all of these distributors and with the demand that we have um, from buyers. And I made that, it took me 24 hours to realize, oh shit, things are changing. Yeah. And, and look, I'm a huge fan of Doodles and Web3 and... I've had some exposure to it. I loved, I've even from, dude, I was watching, you know, everything that you're doing with integrating some of these projects. And I actually, you know, I think Web3 has been hit hard, but it's here to stay. And I think there's some really cool ways to integrate CPG with it. 
So I think it's just trying, like, like you said, like trying out new channels, new ways to create community. You know, how can you differentiate from the Cokes, the Pepsis, the big boys who are, are maybe too slow to act on some of these innovative channels? And I really like that you're doing that as well. I appreciate that, man. Thanks so much. I was just in Miami at Doodle Putt and um, it was so surreal. It was my first moment being out in the wild and seeing people randomly with perfy in their hands, like ordering it from the bar. And Doodles was uh, extremely dope to let me ship a bunch of product there for that. But it was one of the coolest moments so far. Epic. Love that. All right, DG. Well, I'm going to link to um, all of your socials, your personal and your brand. I'll link to your store locator so people can find you in store. Um, I've got to ship you some perfy so you can try it and check it out. Please Um, do. Would love to. And uh, yeah, we also have our new Dream Pops Crunch on Amazon as well. So check us out on Amazon. I'll link to that too. Hell yeah. Well, DG, I appreciate you jumping on the show, man. And it's been an incredible time chatting with you. Balsa, thanks for having us, man. Really appreciate it.